The sermon that we, I will share with you this afternoon was uh, written by Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff from the, uh, the Free Reformed Church of Mount Nasura in Western Australia. And the text for today is Lord's Day 11. In an explanation of Lord's Day 11, he has chosen for the scripture reading three New Testament passages. Our first reading is Matthew 1, the verses 18 to 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she, was brought, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The next reading is out of the book of Acts, chapter 4, the verses 1 through 12. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priests, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power? Or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you, known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In our last reading, you will find chapter 2, book of Philippians, and there we read from the verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. The text for this afternoon we can find in... um, Our catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11. We read in Lord's Day 11, the the title of this uh, section of the catechism is God, the Son, and Our Redemption. And question and answer 29 asks, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because he saves us from all our sins. And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you probably know that in the Bible, our Savior is known by quite a few different names. Some say, well, into the hundreds. Just a couple of examples. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. For through him we come into the presence of God. And he is the Alpha and the Omega. For he is source and purpose, all things in the universe. The names of our Savior are precious gifts. In them we find strength, hope, and comfort. Among the many names of the Son of God, Jesus might be the simplest. Some have called it his personal name, 
like you and I have personal names, whether Derek or Rachel or something else. The name Jesus isn't a title, like he's called king, nor is it a job description, like he's known as the good shepherd. Yes, Jesus is much more than a personal name, a convenient label. The name Jesus means something most important about why he came to earth. In scripture, that's so often the case that names have a loaded meaning, especially when it comes to the names of God. For God's names reveal his character and ability and purpose. And that's also true for the seemingly simple and straightforward name, Jesus. In Lord's Day 11, we see that God gives this name to his son, born in the flesh. And the name Jesus declares that God will, through his only son, through him, God will save his people. This makes the name of our Savior a glorious name. The name that must be on our lips and in our hearts. I preach God's word to you on this theme. Jesus is the name which is above every name. And we see in the first place, Jesus is a unique name. Jesus is the only name in the second place. And finally, Jesus is our complete salvation. First place, Jesus is a unique name. The heading above Lord's Day 11 tells us that we're now busy learning about God, the Son, and our redemption. You may remember from catechism classes that this is the longest section of the Apostles' Creed. We're finished with God the Father in only two Lord's Days. We'll deal with the Holy Spirit in three Lord's Days. But on God the Son, we spent a total of nine Lord's Days. This is for a good reason. For Jesus Christ is the beating heart of our faith. His death and resurrection are the sure foundation of our new life. And beginning this section, the catechism doesn't leave us in any suspense. Though we'd be busy with God the Son for several pages, the simple truth of the gospel is stated up front in answer 29. In a kernel form. The Son of God saves us from all our sins. This is the central truth to be explained and filled out in the coming Lord's days in all of its beauty. But today we begin simply, what is the name of the Son of God? And why does he have this name? Looking at this Lord's day, you'll notice that the catechism seems to give answers away already in the question. Quote, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Did they want to make it easy on those catechism students who including the answer to so obviously in the question? It's not that. Jesus means Savior. But there's more to say. Literally, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. It's a Greek name but it has an equivalent in the Hebrew named Joshua, sort of like how John is in English equivalent of the Dutch Jan. Jesus, Joshua. This connection alerts us to the fact that Jesus is not an uncommon name. 
In the Old Testament, we see that the name Joshua is given to several different persons over his, uh, Israel's history. And even in the New Testament, the Greek name Jesus refers to persons other than the Son of God. There's a couple of examples. Think of Paul's co-worker, Justice, Jesus, who is mentioned in Colossians 4, verse 11. Or there's the false prophet named Bar-Jesus in Acts 13, verse 6. It was a common name. But when humans give names, it means very little for what a child will do with the rest of his life. When God gives a name, however, this makes the name perfectly accurate. For example, when Abram was renamed to Abraham, it meant that he really was going to become the father of many nations. Likewise, when God gives the name Jesus, this reflects the beautiful reality that through this Jesus, the Lord really is going to save. This brings us back when Christ was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. At that time, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, and he instructed him to give the child the name Jesus. Again, keep in mind that this wasn't a remarkable name for people to have, but a normal name like Ethan or Lauren today. Nothing extraordinary except for the earth-shaking reason that the angel then gives to jo Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 21. He will be a savior. Another person who once had this name, Joshua, the son of Nun. It was also an instrument in God's hand to deliver his people. Remember how Joshua brought the people into the promised land and delivered Israel from the Canaanites? In a certain sense, he was a savior too. But the Joshua, the Jesus who was born of Mary, is someone far more notable. He delivered his people from nothing less than the everlasting burden of sin. So, when the day comes that Joseph and Mary give the God-appointed name to their new infant, they already know he's a unique person with a special place in God's plan. And it'd be hard not to be swept up in their excitement as new parents. What a beautiful task to be given to their child to be a new Joshua, a great redeemer. Yet, their little son Jesus, in saving his people from sin, will end up crucified and killed. The catechism doesn't mention the cross here, but it's not far off in the distance, because it's only through the way of suffering and death that sinners are saved. As Paul says of Jesus, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We saw that in Philippians 2, verse 8. It's the cross that makes the name Jesus the name above every name. And Jesus is uniquely qualified to save us, for he is both God and man. He claimed that he was God, and he showed it too. 
for he was worshipped. He didn't object. He forgave people their sins, raised them from the dead. He even said that his name was I Am, just like the name of the Lord, God. He claimed to be God. And Jesus backed up his claim by calming the seas, opening the blind eyes, and casting out demons. Jesus is perfectly qualified to save us because he's also man, one who came in the likeness of men, Philippians 2 verse 7. His humanity was on display in being born of Mary, circumcised on the eighth day, and his growth in wisdom and stature. As a man, he dealt with all the weaknesses of our conditioning, being tired, hungry, thirsty, or being subject to anxiety and temptation. Yet, he failed not once in his duty towards God or his neighbor. So as a true man, as a righteous man, he could die for sinners, says 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. With good reason, the Catechism says that Jesus is a complete Savior. Question and answer 30. He's got all the credentials. He's fully certified to rescue us from death and bring us back to God. Jesus makes us children of the Father, partakers of the divine spirit, and citizens of heaven. He gives us true happiness, the blessedness of being saved from our sins and being bound for glory. In Jesus, God saves. His exalted name proclaims the great work he came to do. His glorious name announces redemption in every letter. And so, let us cling to the name of Jesus in true faith. Think of the great privileges we have, beloved, when we use this name, like in our prayers or in our worship. Whenever we ask with faith in Jesus' name, God will hear and answer us. So use his name. Use it gladly. Use it freely. Jesus, have mercy. Lord Jesus, please help me. God, please save me for Jesus' sake. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, the unique name of our Savior, means God can give us all that we need. In the second place we see Jesus is the only way. So far, we have looked especially at the first part of answer 29. The first, because he is called Jesus. Because he saves us from all our sins. But notice, there's a second because he's called Jesus. Because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. It's affirming the name Jesus is totally exclusive. Essentially, the angel says to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he alone will save his people from sins. The second question in the, this Lord's Day underlines that Jesus is the only way. 
And here, too, we might say the answer is obvious in the question. Do those who seek their salvation or or well-being in saints themselves or anywhere else also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? Question and answer 30. Seems obvious. If Jesus is the only Savior, then of course those who seek their salvation elsewhere do not believe in him. But the catechism is being explicit for a reason. It wants to make clear there is no halfway position possible. Either Jesus is a complete Savior, or he's not. And our response will be similarly black and white. Either we find in Jesus all that we need, or we do not. And we need to look elsewhere. In Acts 4, Peter preaches the truth in a sermon to the Sanhedrin. He explains what's happening as the new movement sweeps Jerusalem and converts thousands. See how the rulers ask him, by what power or by what name have you done this? In verse 7, they know there's something. There's someone behind this upheaval. And the climax of Peter's sermon is this very point. Salvation is found in no one else, no, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Verse 12. It's the last thing Peter says in his address. It's the conclusion, conclusive declaration. Salvation is in Jesus or there's no salvation at all. He who was crucified, the stone the builders rejected, is now the capstone. This common man with a common name is the center and pinnacle of God's salvation work. Many Jews were resisting this message, but Peter is emphatic. There is no other name. In that verse, notice, it's the name that Peter emphasizes. Jesus doesn't give us a method to follow our way uh, to self-improvement or a formula to recite to make all our troubles go away. Salvation is only by faith in the name of Jesus. We trust in him, who, who he is, and what he's done as the only ground of our salvation. Despite Peter's words, Many continue to reject the name of Jesus. Still today, many scorn the name of Jesus. Some people simply do not see their sin and their urgent and desperate need for deliverance. A surprising number of people still say, I believe that at heart, deep down, people are really good. And if mankind is good, then we need no Savior. Others see the immense misery of the world and the ruin of their lives, but they become hopeless. How can there be a Savior who is great enough to deal with all this? Who could ever put right everything that has gone wrong in this world? And some think that this life can, be, can have a purpose through our personal efforts, through living a virtuous life, Maybe by spending good, uh, spreading good karma. And if you can save yourself and create your own meaning and identity, 
Why would you need Jesus? Dependence on self is, an old, is as old as mankind. This was the attraction of Satan's lies to Adam and Eve, that if they ate of the fruit, they would be like God. They liked the thought of self-sufficiency and autonomy. It was still an attractive notion for the Apostle Paul. Remember how he admitted that he had every reason for confidence in the flesh. For his whole life, he had done everything right before the Lord. And it remains attractive today. For we prefer not to depend on someone else for our security and our well-being. Easily, but often unknowingly, we fall into self-dependence. It's like the little child who insists on tying his own shoelaces, even though his shoes are in the wrong feet. And his attempt at a knot is a jumbled ball of string. I can do it myself. By nature, we resist help from outside or above. So while we say that we do believe in the crucified and risen Christ, or Jesus, and in him alone, there can be subtle deception that the things we do somehow contribute to our salvation, that all things, all these good things somehow must make us a little more pleasing to God. We may think of it as something like making a deal with God. If I do these things, good things, then God owes me. I'll be busy every day with what's expected of me, doing devotions, raising covenant children, attending consistory, volunteering in the community, give away money, or being a moral person. If I do this, how could God not bless me? I keep up my side of the deal, and he'll keep up his. There's always a temptation to become even a little comfortable and self-secure in our own efforts and good works. So, we should read this Lord's Day in self-examination. Don't think of the Roman Catholics or Arminians in the first place, but reflect on your own life. Think about these words. Though they boast in him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. Question and answer 30. Sounds harsh? It's a real danger. The name of Jesus is often on our lips. We may even boast of him and say that he's our church's one foundation. But do we truly rely on grace alone through Jesus Christ? You probably heard of the Reformation solus. These are Latin phrases which the Reformers used to emphasize the key teachings of the Scripture. They spoke of sola gratia and sola fide, by faith alone. But together with these, there was another sola that they often declared, sola Christi, in Christ alone. They're repeated often because they were fighting the Roman Catholic way of salvation through Mary and the saints, or salvation through meritorious good works. But the Reformers repeated it often because they knew how all of us will try to supplant God's work of salvation. Humans will always be the immature child, wanting to do what we have no hope of doing properly. 
but salvation can only be sola Christi by Christ alone. As Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 5, confessing the name of Jesus means we cannot save ourselves and cannot find our own way to life. He's the only way to salvation. There is not a second way. There's not a way in combination. There's not a better way. But there is a way. In Christ alone, we have full salvation. And this brings us to our last point. Jesus is our complete salvation. Have you ever pondered what would have happened if Jesus had failed in any way? What if he'd given in? Just once to temptation. Say, one day he got overly frustrated with his disciples and snapped at them. Or he prayed to God one night, but his heart wasn't in it. And he just repeated some empty phrases. What then? If Jesus' merit was incomplete, then God's plan of salvation would have failed. And our sins would be left on our own account. Yes, if Jesus had failed in any way, then we would be expected to look to the saints or look to ourselves or look to some other place. And we already know how futile that kind of search would be. Yet, in Jesus we have all that we need. The scriptures and so also the catechism make it perfectly clear. Jesus did perform his saving work. To the fullest extent, he became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross, Philippians 2, verse 8. He did absolutely everything that was asked of him in order to be the savior of sinners. And so Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 10, you are complete in him. There's nothing deficient in Jesus or in his work. And Christians let lack nothing in him. Or listen to what Hebrews 7 verse 25 says about Jesus as the eternal high priest. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. He's able to save us completely, save us fully. The catechism reflects this complete salvation with a three-letter word that repeats that it repeats twice. It's a small word, but immensely comforting. He says he saves us from all our sins. Question answer 29. We must find in him all that is necessary for salvation. Question answer 30. If all that is necessary, our trust, our love, our worship, can be reserved for him alone. As we confess in Article 21 of the Belgian Confession, quote, therefore we justly say with Paul that we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus our Lord. We find comfort in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means of reconciliation with God 
than this only sacrifice, once offered, by which believers are perfected for all times. End of quote. Pretty absolute, isn't it? We know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. We count everything as loss next to Him. We have no need for any other means. After listening to all this, do any of us think that we're good at heart? Perhaps not. We know full well that we are sinners, completely deserving of death. Or, do any of us depend on ourselves for salvation, even a little bit? Maybe we don't. Deep down, we all know we cannot do it. Do any of us doubt that Jesus can save? Or think that his sacrifice long ago was not enough? Hardly. We are certain that scriptures are God's word. That what they say about Christ is true. We're complete in him. But do we think and do we live as if we really believe this? Together with the theology that we confess goes the theology that we live. In fact, our confession of faith is worthless if we don't live it out from day to day. So, after learning about our great and gracious Savior, what must we do? What remains is our response. The catechism is razor sharp about our responsibility. Those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Question and answer 30. There's actually two parts to that closely related. First, accept the Savior. Believe in him. Acknowledge what he has done for you. And second, find in Christ all that you need, all that is necessary. Yes, for our lives, what is really necessary? Perhaps we crave security. We like a sense of fulfillment. We hope for a purpose. But more than anything, we need peace. Peace with God. And it could only be in Jesus Christ. It needs only be in Him because He's big enough Strong enough, gracious enough as our mighty God and faithful Savior. So, do we live out this theology? Do we live like we're miserable sinners who deserved eternal pain, but who got unlimited grace? Do we daily bow before God's throne and plead on his mercy in Jesus? Because we know that he's all that we need. And do we then live in the same mercy towards other people, showing patience, grace, and forgiveness like our Savior? Let at the name of Jesus every knee bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess and trust and glorify the name which is above every name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.